The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Can a scientific approach to addressing social issues using administrative data improve outcomes in education, health, social services, and crime? That is the hypothesis of a new paper which is published by four distinguished Canadian economists. The authors say there is a relationship between measures of secondary educational attainment and indicators of poor outcome later in life. Poor outcomes are seen to primarily manifest among high school dropouts. One of the authors of the paper, Bill Warburton, says that by using data we can identify 2,000 students in a given year that are at extreme risk of having poor educational outcomes. Warburton goes on to say, the earlier we can identify these students, the earlier we can provide them with the specific resources they need to dramatically improve the likelihood of graduating from high school. The paper is bold in stating the challenges. At first blush, the solution seems clear. Governments should invest in proven interventions early in children's lives. But Warburton says the political will needs to be there because, as a BC cabinet minister once pointed out, there is a deficiency in public trust, noting the very long time between investment and payoff. I invited economist Bill Warburton to join me for a conversation that matters about the data and how we can use it to improve students' lives. Bill, welcome. Thanks so much, and thanks so much for having me. It's a fascinating topic that you've dug into. Give me an overview of your findings. The Data Innovation Program gave us wonderful access to anonymized administrative data, and we were able to use that to look at social issues in a new and interesting way. Explain how that worked. So the first thing that we did was we looked at a million students who were in the education system in British Columbia, and we could follow them forward using the administrative data into adulthood and see how they turned out. We could see in the education system uh, what their educational attainment was, and we could see in the administrative data from other ministries uh, what their outcomes were. So what in particular did you find? Was the data playing out the way that we tend to think it will, or were you surprised? I was surprised by a couple of things. Uh, the first thing I'll say, uh, which probably isn't surprising to people, is that three quarters of the uh, social issues that we see, homelessness, crime, uh, drug abuse, uh, drug mortality, uh, and poverty were manifest among children who had dropped out of school, who had not completed high school. That's the single common denominator or most common denominator? Yes, uh, in the data that we had, uh, we, looked through, we were looking specifically at that. What was their educational attainment and how was that related to social issues? And we found that the higher the educational attainment in secondary school, uh, the better they did. So for example, uh, uh, people who graduated on time with at least an average GPA, uh, hardly any of them received income assistance. Whereas uh, people who didn't even make it to grade 12, 
about 20% of them were on income assistance in any given month. And when we added up all the income assistance that was paid to people in our sample, three quarters of it was paid to people who hadn't graduated from high school. We looked at, at that for income assistance as a proxy for poverty. We looked at it for crime. We looked at it for uh, drug deaths. We looked at it for treatment for drug and alcohol abuse. We looked at it for next generation children in care. So what sort of parents uh, um, the, the children of which sort of parents ended up in the care of the Ministry for Children and Family Development. And across all of those things, the common denominator, as you say, was that they had not completed high school. So in essence, though, with your data, you were reverse engineering because you look at the outcome and then you say, okay, let's now start to understand this person's life. And so this is what started to appear. Uh, this was the common factor that people had given that they had not completed high school? Yes. Now you asked, was there anything surprising about it? Well, we did two things. I think that most people would uh, probably not be too surprised that most of these issues were manifest among people who hadn't graduated from high school. The thing that I found really surprising was that when you look at these kids when they're 10 years old, you can already tell for about 2,000 of them which ones aren't going to graduate from high school. So, Okay, but is that when you look back on their life and say at 10 years of age, we can see now what the predictors were and by extension, can you now take a look at a 10 year old and say, this is the trajectory of your life? the second of those two, the sadder of those two, that when kids are 10 years old, you take the characteristics that they have then and you can say, oh my gosh, you're in real trouble. So in the terminology, these are prospective studies. That's to say, you take the characteristics now and you see, oh my gosh, how are these people gonna turn out? And the shocking thing I think is that 2,000 kids, about 5% of each cohort is pretty in uh, uh, pretty well doomed at the age of 10. Okay, but finding those 2,000 students within the system that's province-wide, how do you go about identifying them without profiling them? Ah, <laughs> okay, I don't have all the answers. I have to say that that is a serious challenge, right? One of the things that um, I think we would face. So we can identify the kids. We could say, okay, uh, if you come from an income assistance family, then you're more likely to uh, not graduate from high school. If you've been a child in care, you're more likely to not graduate from high school. So there's a real serious dilemma that I have to say, I don't have the- Don't we have a moral responsibility to help them? Isn't that part of what the education system is supposed to be about? Ah, <laughs> okay, I don't have all the answers. I have to say that that is a serious challenge, right? One of the things that um, I think we would face, so we can identify the kids, we could say, okay, uh, if you come from an income assistance family, then you're more likely to uh, not graduate from high school. If you've been a child in care, you're more likely to not graduate from high school. So there's a real serious dilemma that I have to say, I don't have this solution to. All I can say is that um, we can identify those children. We can see that already by the age of 10, the die is cast for them. Now, let me, let me just put it in a slightly different uh, way. Um, every kindergarten teacher can tell which kids have the behavioral problems in their uh, schools. So now the question is, should we do something about that 
or would that just be profiling them? So my view is that, in fact, when we see that a child's having problems and we know that it has such dire consequences, the moral thing to do is to provide some services for them. Now, uh, Richard Tremblay, who's kind of a famous person in this area, works in Montreal, did a study uh, in which he, as a psychologist with his team, provided services to these kids, provided them, taught them how to uh, make friends, how to control their emotions, how to avoid outbursts. And those kids had 20% higher incomes over their lifetime than the control group. So I had, yeah, amazing. It was written up in the American Economic Review in August of this year. An amazing study, in my opinion, uh, done with random assignment, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later. Um, so, so a rigorous study is what I, I'm, I'm trying to say there. So there is a dilemma, I think, that we have to face as a society, which is to say, okay, if you can see that a child is in trouble, should you help them? Or are you going to say, no, I'm just going to let life play out for these kids as it is, even though we know it's going to be terrible. Now, Gabby, you hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Don't we have a moral responsibility to help them? Isn't that part of what the education system is supposed to be about? I certainly feel that way. But I have to say that when I've given this presentation in other cases, that sometimes people come back with, oh my gosh, if you offer uh, services to these children, aren't you going to stigmatize them? And let me just say that I don't... Um, that I, I believe that that's a serious issue. Like uh, one of the things uh, that we uh, 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 that, that has been developed in the literature is that sometimes we try to help kids and we end up harming them. And one of the areas in which that is most uh, evident is in the crime prevention area, where you take a whole bunch of kids who have troubles and you put them all together, and oh my gosh, what you find out is that the troubles multiply. So I'm not saying that I know exactly and right off the bat what we should do. What I'm advocating for is a process in which we try to help people, but we are very careful about ensuring that we are helping them. So I would imagine if we're talking 2,000 students in a given year across all of British Columbia, why would you need to take them out of their class or their social environment if you've identified that this person is going to benefit by having the kind of attention that is meant to be supportive without labeling them? You know, it's a, it's a huge number of people. So I have uh, two answers to that. One is that when I talk to psychiatrists, of course I have no expertise in that area whatsoever, but what other people have been telling me is that when a child has behavioral problems and emotional problems, especially at that young age, that that is a problem of the family, an issue of the family. When I talk to people in the education system, what they say is that what we can do under the School Act is that we can take this child, we can send them down to the hall to the uh, psychologist, they can have a, an hour of counseling, counseling, and then they go back into the same classroom and they go back into the same family at home. So what people have said to me that I found really convincing is if you can treat the family, if you can encourage them to interact with each other uh, differently, then you can have better results. Now again, <laughs> let me just say, 
that really makes a lot of sense to me. Is it really true or not? Well, let's do the studies and find out if it's true here in BC. So what kind of study do you do? Do you do a randomized study or do you have a particular control group? How do you go about studying this to start to then come up with a formula that says, okay, we recognize that when somebody does not complete high school, it dramatically impacts the quality of their life in health, wellness, employment, and on and on and on. Uh, so how would you do the studies? Okay, so I... Um, so, so there are a number of studies that I've seen that look uh, that, that that I think are really promising. Uh, so let me uh, step back a second and talk about this guy James Heckman, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, one of the most right-wing economics departments in the world. There are <laughs> economists are a little weird. Every economist is ranked, <laughs> and uh, of the sixty-five thousand ranked economists, James Heckman is number two. Yeah, a real hotshot. Uh, and he's been interested in this area. He, his favorite intervention is called the Ebsidarian uh, program. It was launched in North Carolina 30, 40 years ago. Uh, and we've been tracking those children ever since. And we see not just long-term impacts, but intergenerational impacts. Now, one of the things that you've probably heard if you've been talking to people in this area is somebody saying, you get $6 back for every dollar you invest. Okay, well, that's, that, was Heckman, uh, that was Heckman's number for the Epsidarian program in North Carolina. Hugely expensive intervention. It was, I think, $18,000 per kid per year, and it started really early in life. Nonetheless, it made such a difference in their lives that they paid more taxes, committed fewer crimes, more likely to graduate from high school, all those, uh, all those advantages. This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Okay, for our viewers, they're, they're going to say, what? The Abbasidarian? Explain that. <laughs> Explain that. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, the Epsidarian program was an intervention in which uh, uh, new mothers, uh, highly disadvantaged mothers, so there's the stigma issue again, uh, were provided counseling, uh, uh, nutrition, counseling, and the children were provided very high quality childcare. Uh, so it was a whole package for the child within the family. In looking up the definition of the word, it also seems to suggest to help somebody to develop or grow. And, and so is it the child or is it the child and the family that you're working with? In that case, it was the child and family. And again, from what people tell me that when you do interventions for the child and family, uh, they tend to be more effective than if you do an intervention for the child alone. So at $18,000 per family unit, that's an investment. That's an investment. Year over year, over year, over year, multiple cohorts from different years, all happening at the same time. To that, there's going to be pushback saying, well, prove to me that it's going to work. Exactly. Uh, so let me just make a comment about the magnitude. So for many of the special needs classifications in the education system, that's the order of magnitude of investment that we make currently. 
uh, but they're never implemented using random assignment. So are they working or not? Uh, uh, people have the right to be skeptical, I think. Uh, so, uh, and then uh, let's, let's get into the, uh, I think, the implicit question there, which is, how do you know if a program works or not? So this goes back to uh, 1708 and a guy by the name of Jacob Bernoulli who proved what he called his golden theorem, uh, which is the mathematical uh, basis for the random assignment method for evaluating interventions. So let me just say that random assignment is the only method which can be proved mathematically to generate unbiased estimates of impacts of an intervention. Uh, and random assignment occurs when you randomly select from a pool the people who are going to get the intervention and you compare their outcomes with the rest of the pool, the ones who didn't get the intervention. So the Absidarian program was estimated using random assignment. Random assignment, because of its unbiasedness property, is required by law for things like new medical devices, all new drugs, and uh, <laughs> things that are really important to the middle class. Uh, they're rarely used in social programs, although this evidence-based policy uh, 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 movement is seeking to correct that. Um, okay, let, let me just say another thing about random assignment, and that it is it usually brings bad news. Now, I mentioned that it's used for uh, the evaluation of uh, drugs and medical devices. And you have, uh, are aware, I'm sure, that drug companies spend millions, tens of millions of dollars getting drugs to that final stage where they are tested using random assignment according to law. Despite the fact that they have invested such a huge amount of money, more than half of them do not make it through that randomized trial uh, and get onto the market. When Google and uh, Microsoft try new things with their clients to see if they can get a better outcome, they test those with random assignment because, of course, <laughs> they're clever. Uh, but they find that 90% of these new ideas that they have don't actually pay off. Uh, yeah, at random assignment, for people who are serious about things, random assignment is the way to go. So, for example, in the Obama campaign, when they uh, targeted their uh, mailings, they would try different forms for different subsets of their group and then see which ones worked best at getting people to the polls, at getting people to give money, and so on. So it, it's a very well-known, well-established method. For some reason, we don't use it very often in, uh, uh, in social policy issues. When we do, like in these other areas, we mostly get bad news. Is there good news in that? Bad news? Because Absolutely. Because, because you then identify what yeah. isn't working Absolutely. and then start to work more Absolutely. towards what Absolutely. will. And so that's the benefit here. But it takes a commitment. Absolutely. How do you then get people who are elected for short-term political terms to make the kind of commitment knowing that they're committing dollars and resources and putting their own reputation from a political perspective on the line. How do we get them to start to appreciate that there's value in this? 
Absolutely. That's, that's the challenge. So when I talked to a politician about this years ago, the first thing I said, why don't we invest more money in children? There are all these uh, uh, interventions that have been shown to be effective. And the response, right off the bat, uh, he'd clearly been asked this question before because he answered so quickly and he said, it's all about public trust. You're asking us to invest a hundred, well, as you said before, $18,000 a year per child. And you're saying to the voters, you're asking me to say to the voters, trust us, <laughs> we'll get that back to you with interest over the next 60 years. Well, when the OECD, when the Pew Research, when all these organizations that study public trust go out and try to measure public trust, they find that it has uh, fallen, right? So with the OECD, for example, in Canada, fewer than half the people will say, yes, I trust the, uh, I trust the government to do what's, uh, what's right. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. <laughs> you remind me of that line from Ronald Reagan. I'm here from the government. I'm here to help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which makes it a little bit more difficult. Absolutely. So what are the biggest barriers that you're facing in trying to get people to say, this is worth examining because the payoff is extraordinary. Is it, it's in, in individual lives yes. and societal. Absolutely. So while uh, trust in government is not high, trust in scientists still remains high. Uh, so many of us are grateful for uh, the vaccines uh, and the advice that we got around COVID that that has given a bump, in fact, to scientists and science. So uh, there is still trust there. I, I've forgotten what the numbers are, but I think it was around 75% uh, of people would trust a, a scientist. So what I believe we need is somebody with an external um, uh, reputation, somebody that people would trust for themselves, who is appointed as an external advisor to oversee interventions to improve the well-being of children. The, uh, now, one of the things that I think is kind of cool about this is that when you deflect a child from these horrible trajectories onto better ones, you can see the uh, difference quite quickly. So their reading scores go up, their uh, likelihood of being classified as having a behavioral disorder, their special needs codes uh, improve, um, all, all these things. And uh, my colleagues at the Human Early Learning Partnership uh, are doing a lot of work to measure the um, social and emotional well-being of children. And of course, uh, the Ministry of Education and Statistics Canada both measure the educational attainment of children. So. There are measures around that will pick that up. What we need is somebody that we trust who says, yes, I can tell you that when we did this for these children, it improved these scales by this amount. And based on the trajectories of children in the past, we can extrapolate that to um, these uh, sorts of savings, uh, these sorts of benefits in the future. So basically, you're saying for each of those 2,000 people that can be identified each year, create a bespoke program that addresses their needs and those of their family, rather than coming up with a blanket policy that's applied to all students. 
I think that's right. I mean, I think that, for example, um, uh, behavioral problems are mainly manifest in boys. <laughs> so providing that service to girls probably isn't going to have the same payoff. Uh, that uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, children may be uh, shy and introverted and others uh, uh, more extroverted and aggressive, right? So there probably are different issues that these children face. Uh, and uh, over time, of course, what we want to do is get better and better at identifying which interventions work for which children. Now, I. We have talked about the education system a lot. Uh, my colleagues at HELP will uh, have these wonderful graphs of child development, which show that there are periods of plasticity in the human mind uh, and even in the genome, which genes are expressed, this epigenetics I'm sure you've heard about, uh, which are more malleable the earlier you are in life. Uh, so my colleagues at HELP, and I certainly agree with them, would advocate for interventions like the Ibsidarian one, which started right at birth. Uh, and just to emphasize that a little bit, um, in the literature, people have succeeded in raising the IQs of disadvantaged people, but not after the children get to the age of three or four. So when you're early in life and you provide a better nutrition, uh, better stimulation, interestingly enough, uh, you can actually raise kids' IQs and have effects during the lifetime, but you can also uh, affect their um, uh, social and emotional well-being as well. I can't help but think of what Aristotle said a couple thousand years ago. The responsibility of all of us is to realize our potential, recognizing that everybody has different potential, but he pointed out that a failure to do so isn't just a loss to the ind individual, but to all of society. And you, in essence, are saying the same thing. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah.